Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to Golf Talk Live. I'm your host, Ted Odorico, broadcasting live every Thursday, 6 to 8 p.m. Central, from Panama City Beach, Florida, home of the world's most beautiful beaches. I want to take this opportunity to thank everyone for joining me on my weekly broadcast. Every week, I'll feature some of the best instructors, coaches, authors, and entrepreneurs in the golf business today. I begin with a great discussion on Coach's Corner, followed by an insightful interview with my special guest. So let's get started by introducing tonight's Coach's Corner panel. All right, good evening, everybody, and welcome to Golf Talk Live. Once again, I'm Ted Odorico, your host. I'm very, very excited tonight uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, we're coming into the long weekend here in another day or so, and I'm looking forward to spending some time with family, and that is, I know we all are, so I'm really excited about that. And I've got some great uh, folks joining me this evening. Uh, starting up is going to be uh, the guys uh, on the Coach's Corner panel, and then a little bit later on in the show, I'm going to be joined by uh, the voice of golf himself, Mr. Peter Kessler, is going to be joining me on the second half of the show, and I'm really looking forward to our discussion this evening. Um, but in the meantime, uh, let me remind everybody, Golf Talk Live is brought to you by the iGolfSports.com network, uh, a live stream broadcast and media production company, and Golf Tips, the game's most in-depth uh, instruction magazine, offering insightful reviews on the latest equipment, tips from top PGA and LPGA teach professionals designed to help improve your game from tee to green. So subscribe today at GolfTipsMag.com. All right, as I mentioned, I've uh, got a couple of great guys uh, joining me here on the first half on Coach's Corner. Let me introduce you to both of them, and then we'll bring uh, them on and uh, begin our discussion this evening on the panel. Uh, first up is John Decker. He's a PGA instructor and senior editor uh, and Golf Tips Top 25 instructor. Uh, he's uh, 2015 Southern Ohio Teacher of the Year. Uh, prior to that, he was the head instructor at the Grand Cypress uh, Academy, where he worked under top 100 instructors, Fred Griffin and Phil Rogers, and he authored the book, uh, Golf is My Life, Glorifying God Through the Game, uh, which of course includes a Bible study. Uh, Also joining him this evening is Bill Abrams, a PGA professional and owner-director of instruction at uh, Golf Solutions Academy in Balmoral Woods in Crate, Illinois, and in the winter months, you'll find him down at the Grand Palms Resort in Florida. Um, two great professionals and excited to have them join me on the panel tonight. Uh, guys, welcome to the Coach's Corner panel here on Golf Talk Live. Great. Thank you, Ted. Ted. Thanks for having us again. All right. Well, I appreciate it. And we're, we're sort of on the cusp of a, of a, a major holiday weekend, July 4th, of, of course, Independence Day here in the United States. And I know everybody's excited uh, and looking forward to uh, some fun family time, and as we all are, and uh, we're, we're grateful for uh, all the sacrifices that have been made over the uh, over the years um, to bring freedom to uh, certainly the greatest country uh, that you can ever imagine. So um, we want to give a shout out to all of the uh, first responders and to all of those that serve in the military uh, for all of the work that they've done over the years to keep uh, everybody safe here in the United States. So we're going to honor them a little bit uh, as we celebrate uh, this holiday weekend. All right. Um, we're going to talk about tonight. This was a, a conversation actually that Cindy, um, talking about my good friend, uh, LPGA professional Cindy Miller and I had uh, on our Tuesday morning show, the women of golf, which is also on this network, blogtalkradio.com. Uh, you can find us there Tuesdays from nine to 10 a.m. Eastern. Um, and this was a discussion that we had where we talked about 
really golf teachers versus golf coaches. Uh, what are some of the differences and some of the similarities? And we'll get into a little bit more specific as we go along. But I, I'm going to start with uh, with you, John, if you don't mind. And one of the uh, similarities between uh, uh, teaching and coaching are, are as follows. Uh, teaching, of course, a teacher obviously teaches, but uh, uh, so does a coach. A golf coach has to know how to be able to fix swing problems and impart technical instruction uh, like a teacher, a coach uh, has to know the rules and etiquette of the game and be able to teach them to their players. But there are some distinct uh, differences, and again, we're going to get into those a little bit. But as far as teaching, uh, just strictly teaching the game as opposed to coaching, what are some key factors do you think that sort of separates the two? Um, John? Well, this is a great, uh, interesting discussion, um, Ted. And I, first of all, I want to thank you for having me on the show. And Bill, I look forward to being on the show with you as well. Uh, when I think of a teacher, um, I think of someone, first of all, that's going to work on the technical golf swing. Uh, a lot of times teachers are going to be the ones that introduce students to the game, uh, like in junior golf. Um, as, as, and it's very important that, that the teacher is spending not as much time with, uh, with the student maybe as the coach is. They might see them once a week uh, or maybe twice a week if they're doing lessons or maybe a camp or something along those lines. But they're more into, you know, we're going to address today, we're going to address, you know, your pitch shot or your putting or, or driver or whatever, whatever it may be, or club fitting, uh, something along those lines. Uh, whereas a coach is going to be, whether it's a high school coach, college coach, or someone that is um, hired to be like out on the PGA Tour, you're going to be spending much more time with your player uh, out on the golf course. You're going to be spending much more time getting into uh, more of the playing situations, uh, talking, you know, obviously a teacher is going to be keeping and tracking uh, scores for their student. But when I when I think of teacher and coach, those are kind of the differences and the and the similarities. Obviously, there's going to be situations where, where a coach is going to have to work with someone on their swing if they're especially uh, a student, maybe at a high school or college level. If they get off, you know, their game gets off a little bit, the first person they're going to probably go to is their whoever their coach is. So the coach has got to have some knowledge of the swing, but I think the best coaches are able to manage a lot of people, whereas a teacher is working more specifically with one person on one thing. Right, well said. Um, and Bill, motivating. Uh, certainly both teachers and coaches have to be uh, good at motivating in order to get the best out of those they teach and coach. Um, there are times, of course, when, when golfers, whether or not they compete, um, doesn't necessarily want to give the effort necessary to improve. So teachers and coaches have to know some motivational techniques in order to help these players. So from a teaching standpoint, well, again, we're going to talk about coaching a little bit more uh, a little bit later. But from a teaching uh, perspective, even though, as John pointed out, they're only, in many cases, may only be dealing with them once a week, uh, sometimes once every two weeks uh, in many cases, they still have to motivate them. But they're motivating them, in, I think, in a different way. Um, you know, they're they're maybe motivating on specific techniques. They're not really uh, working in a competitive nature. They're talking about um, specific swing techniques or uh, swing uh, issues that that may arise that they want them to focus on. But they have to be motivating uh, in doing that. So give us maybe an example of of your experience as a as a teacher, and I know you also coach as well, um, where motivating uh, becomes uh, important. Yeah, I, it's pretty simple, Ted. I 
to be honest with you, I don't consider myself a teacher. I consider myself a coach because I work with the entire player. Um, I don't just focus on the technical aspects of it, but the motivational aspects of it, the, the psychological aspects of playing, and really coach the entire player. Um, and I take that it's a little bit different. Everybody's definition of the coach is a little bit different. But in my site, I do a lot of measurement. So we do on-course measurement. We do measurement around the greens and, you know, with, with mental measurement so we can motivate the player in the proper areas. Um, you know, when we can measure it, we can, we can figure it out, then we're all set to go. Um, if we can't measure it, we can't manage it. And so often mm. what happens is, you know, a player will come to a teacher and say, okay, I'm slicing the ball. Well, okay, we put them on machinery and see this or that, but they don't really see what's happening on the golf course, and there's an entirely different swing. So to be able to motivate somebody, I have to see the entire picture before we start to work on it. And, you know, I, I, even with beginners, we work on things that are, you know, a, a blend of mental and technical so they don't have to take an extra jump or a leap as they get better. Right, right, exactly. Well said. Um, and, and, John, you know, another component that sort of goes along with what, what Bill just talked about, the sort of the motivating factor, and that is the attitude, um, and, and not just the attitude of the student, but more importantly, the attitude of the teacher. Um, you know, we want them to be positive, um, I guess you could almost say one of the long-standing credos for teachers is to always carry a positive attitude when teaching. Uh, of course, the, certainly the same applies for for coaches. But uh, you know, coaching that provides for a negative atmosphere leads to players who don't want to put in the work necessary or give the effort to improve uh, or win. Um, so again, it sort of goes back to that that motivating. So when it comes to you know you when you're working with with students that um, you're teaching some of the fundamentals in that. Obviously, it's important for you to have a positive attitude. And some might think that's a simple thing, but you'd be surprised. And we've talked about this on the show before, where sometimes a coach or a teacher will uh, point out too many areas that the student is having a difficulty with and not really offering any reinforcement in some of the areas that they are uh, successful with. Maybe you can touch about how important your attitude is uh, in, in conjunction with the players. Well, my attitude is very important um, because this game will uh, beat you up, and the golf ball will never lie to you. The golf ball is the most honest uh, thing that is on this earth, and um, when you mishit it, it will let you know it. And so most people who come to me, quite frankly, uh, come to me when they're at the bottom of their game. They, mo- most people are coming to me when they're playing poorly, when their things are not going well. They're coming in the door with a bad attitude um, a, a lot of times because uh, they, you know, they, they need something fixed. And so a lot of the times when I'm working with players like that, it's important for me to, you know, kind of be there as more than just a, a teacher, but be there as someone to, and, and show support, you know, show empathy, say, yes, I've struggled with that. I've struggled with three-putting. I've struggled with, you know, hooking the ball out of bounds. All of those things that we all have as teachers um, have, have gone through. And so I think that's important to, to show empathy, to show, hey, I, I know what you're going through, but I've dealt with this before, and we will fix this. You have to let them know that there is light at the end of the tunnel. They're going to get through this. This is part of the ebb and flow uh, of, 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 the, of the game of golf. And if you think it's just going to be smooth sailing, um, you're kidding yourself. There's always going to be obstacles. And as you learn, obviously challenging players – 
is very important. I, I want to challenge and push players. I want players to become the best players they can be. So when you do that, and you're, you, you've got to be positive because the golf ball is going to give them negative reinforcement on every swing if they're not doing it correctly. And so that means I have to counter that with positive. Okay, you didn't hit that ball well, but you did this correctly. A lot of times my students will make – they'll do exactly what I want them to do, and they'll hit a poor shot, and I'll say, no, that's okay. You did what I wanted you to do. And normally when they're doing that, by the second or third shot after that, they start really hitting the ball well if I can see that they're making the change that I want them to make. So having a positive attitude is is very important. And that's something I think if you're out there, if you're looking for a PGA golf professional, that's one of the first things that I think that you should look at is, you know, getting a chance to meet them and talk to them and what kind of attitude are they going to bring to the lesson? Yeah, well, well said. Um, you know, a lot of times our attitude, um, you know, on the golf course, it, it, as you pointed out earlier, John, is, it, you know, it can be very difficult. It, it, the game can beat you up quite a bit. And, um, you know, for those that, that uh, are, are struggling with areas, and, and as you uh, mentioned, they're, they're coming out to us to, um, to sort of find, um, you know, find a solution or a resolution to some of the issues. And again, we want to be upbeat. We want to be encouraging and positive with our instruction so that when they, they come there, they're not, they're not having a sense or a feeling of, you know, what am I going to do wrong today? They know they're going to make some mistakes along the way. We all do. Um, but I think if they know that they're coming to a, a sort of a positive environment and, that there's going to be a certain element of encouragement and, and obviously we're going to work on the areas that need to, I think that they're more receptive to the teaching. If they feel that they're, you know, it's only their flaws or, or, uh, you know, indiscretions that are being pointed out, then they're not going to have a, I think a very pleasurable experience. Um, Bill knowledge is something to, um, you know, both uh, instructors and, and, and coaches have in, in common. They, uh, obviously have to have a general understanding of the game and they have to have uh, specific knowledge in certain areas to be successful. Um, and for you, what do you try to do? Obviously, you know, you're a, a certified professional and you've taken, you know, a variety of different uh, uh, levels of, of uh, instruction yourself and, and uh, in preparation to be, to become the instructor that you are. Um, but there's a lot of information out there that many of our students come across that maybe is not coming from the most re reliable uh, sources. So when you're dealing with your students as a teaching professional, and I know you mentioned earlier you do more along the lines of uh, considering yourself a coach, but as a, as a professional, what do you do to find balance when you're working with students and you're combating um, an element of uh, misinformation uh, coming through a variety of different sources. How do you find and strike a balance with them based on your knowledge and what they're seeing, whether it be on YouTube or some other form? How do you find that balance to make sure that you're giving them sound information and sort of not necessarily uh, critiquing what they're hearing, um, but maybe presenting it in a way that you're explaining why this may not be uh, the best option for them? That's a great question, Ted, and I think that's one of the biggest problems with golf instruction and the availability 
of information and a lot of misinformation out of here. Um, I feel that a lot of times there's too many assumptions that are made and players just automatically jump on them. I know a lot of lawyers that have made an awful lot of money on other people's assumptions, and that's kind of the yes. tact that I take. So I, commu- right. I communicate with the player and ask what they're looking for. I really want to hear what they're doing, and basically it gets down to if I can give you one shot when a new player comes to me, if I can give you one shot that will make you happier with your game and make you want to play more golf, what is it? Then we go from there and we start to talk and, um, and I always say, let me suggest this. Let me suggest this. I don't say do this, do this, do this. I say, let me suggest this. In your case, here's what we're seeing. We'll look at the video. We'll look at some of the measurements on the launch monitor and I say, okay, this is what's happening. And here's where we'd like to get to, to help you be more efficient. So let me suggest we try this. And they'll be like, well, I, I heard this. I said, okay, that's fine. And then I'll ask them, what are you trying to do in the swing? Well, I'm trying to take it straight back. And I'll say, okay, define what straight back is. And I, get, I, I, I tell you what, if I got a dollar for every time I got a blank look on that, I'd make Trump look like a, uh, a pauper, for goodness sake. And I say, define <laughs> what you're trying to do. And they'll be like, well, straight back. I said, well, what's straight back? And they don't have an answer for it. And that opens the conversation now because they've heard something. Mm. They don't quite understand what they're hearing. And then if I can clarify and define it to the player, the communication has been – it almost becomes a complete link right at that point in time. They'll listen to what you're trying to say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. Um, I think that, you know, we all get faced with this – new age of technology um, in every aspect of our life, not just in golf, we get bombarded with a lot of information and it can be very difficult um, sorting and sifting through that information. And this is where, um, and we can't emphasize this enough for, you know, students out there, players, amateurs, however you want to rank yourself, why it's important that you connect with your local professional Um, because we are trained specifically in certain things that will help you achieve uh, a much better um, success rate, if you will. And we're going to help you sift through some of that information. We don't want to spend all of our time having to to differentiate um, between what you're hearing and what you're or reading, um, but we can certainly help strike a balance, as I said, in, in what's really accurate and what's just sort of an opinion. Um, and that's important. And that's where, you know, as as Bill just pointed out, that's where knowledge comes from, is as a a seasoned professional and as as John and and myself, you know, we've taken the extra steps to educate ourselves as golf professionals so that when you come to us, we're able to impart that knowledge from sound. uh, And certainly those things change and evolve over time. We've learned new techniques. We've learned new things along the way, but it's coming from a sound benchmark, if you will, uh, and that's it's critical. All right, I talked about uh, in the beginning, I mentioned that there are some similarities, and there are uh, a number of similarities between a teacher professional and a coach, but here we're going to look at some of the differences. And, John, I'm going to start with you again. Uh, competition. Um, this, of course, is the biggest difference. Uh, coaches uh, prepare players for team or individual competition, while teachers, again, are mainly involved in the teaching and refining uh, of, of that technique. Um, Again, once a a teacher starts preparing a player for competition, that teacher is now 
uh, also a coach, becomes the coach, uh, and coaches need to know the physical, mental, and emotional aspects of competition in order to uh, get their players to perform as uh, optimally as they can. So they need to be familiar with uh, the strategic aspects of the game and the differences in competing uh, at, uh, as an example, stroke play and match play. So, you know, John, we kind of have to have many hats, if you will, when you sort of become a coach uh, and you're coaching a player because it's not just a matter of showing and helping them to understand the golf swing and impact and, and all of this sort of thing. Now we have to understand what and express what it's going to be like for them in competition and prepare them mentally, physically, uh, and uh, emotionally even in, in uh, many cases uh, for that competition. You've competed, um, so you have obviously direct knowledge of that. Explain about the um, importance of understanding the competition yourself as a coach and how you try to prepare your students um, for competition. It's um, funny that you're bringing up this question because I actually was just talking uh, about this today with a fellow teacher here in Ohio. Um, and um, we were talking about how you cannot replicate on a lesson tee what you are going to experience in a tournament. I could replicate a shot. I could say, okay, here's the first hole at your golf course that you're going to be playing on, and we could, you know, and, and try to try to imagine it. But I, what I'm talking about are the nerves, are the uh, the anxiety, the the what we all go through when you're preparing. Um, the, you know, how you handle yourself, how you you know, how soon you get to the, um, you know, to get your scorecard and, and check it. You know, you don't want to arrive 15 minutes before your, your group and you don't want to show up and be the last one there, you, you know, pacing yourself, how you're breathing, all of these things, what you're eating, all of these things uh, you have to experience. And especially for the new golfer, the, the junior golfer, or maybe even someone on a high school team that's, you know, just made the high school team and they're experiencing a tournament for the first time. You have to, you have to, um, as a teacher or as a coach, you have to be able to explain to them, this is what you're going to feel, but this is normal. It's, I want you to be, I want you to have a little bit of nerves. I want you to, I want you to have a little bit of excitement because that shows you care. But I certainly don't want you to play with fear. I don't want you to go out there and 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 you know tighten up to where you're playing with fear. So I, I think it's very important that you share experiences. Uh, with the with the players that that you've gone through, and you know, in my past uh, playing on mini tours and and the years of playing in, in section events and all that I all the grind that I went through, um, I you know I do have some things to draw upon, um, and but also my experience coaching out on the PGA tour and coaching at the Women's U.S. Open, uh, th those are experiences that I try to draw upon as well, because I talk about hey before the before the PGA championship, you know, I saw Luke Donald stretching in the locker room, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, and those are the type of things I try to give them practical, like practical things that are, is going, that are going to um, make an impact in the play. I don't try to uh, sugarcoat it. I try to say, Hey, this, this is what they do. When the tour players get to the driving range, they, they, they stretch and they're warm up. They don't start ripping drivers they're, They go to the putting green and they, they work their way up to the driver. They may not hit a driver, for 35 or 40 minutes before when they walk out onto the practice area. So, you know, I try to give them experiences like that, things that I've noticed, what the, the best players in the world do, uh, so that it'll help their game. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, well said. Um, build technology. Um, you know, we've talked about it many times on the show um, from a variety of different viewpoints. Um, but a coach generally uh, needs to make a uh, wider use of technology than, uh, say, a teacher. For example, uh, uh, technologies such as TrackMan and or FlightScope uh, are launch monitors used by uh, many club fitters, but also competitive golfers uh, quite often seek out these devices so they can truly know exactly what they're doing in terms of ball flight and club action through impact. So while these devices are not necessary in order to be a great coach, um, they certainly help players in performing their best. Um, so when it comes to technology, I know you've used some or maybe all of uh, the items that I've mentioned or something similar. Um, how big do you think technology plays, in, particularly in today's modern game, um, as a coach? How, how, how often do you think um, you feel that you rely or use or utilize technology in uh, some of your coaching experience? Well, that's a great question again, Ted. And I think, to be quite honest, I'm going to preface this by saying technology can definitely be overused and under and mm. underappreciated and under misunderstood at a lot of times. Um, the technology that I use, I use it mainly for measuring seeing where a player is now and what the potential is to get them to another level. I also use it for measuring for things like gap fitting their set, making sure they know how far each club goes, things of that nature. But I think at times we, we find ourselves, and even maybe one of the greatest players of all time got caught into this, chasing numbers on a, on a track man. And that can mm -hmm. become very detrimental very rapidly with a player. I feel that one of the things is once we get the measurements as a good coach and a good teacher, we have to be able to provide the prescription. And I've, I've used this semin in seminars before when I've spoke, I said, you know, technology is wonderful if we understand how to apply it and utilize it. If I had an MRI machine or any one of the three of us had an MRI machine, we put somebody in it, we'd see a lot of neat colors, but could we prescribe a solution to what needs to be happening? And I think that's one mm -hmm. of the things that we have to blend it with. We have to have a prescription on the back end. When we see these numbers, how are we going to get these numbers better for a player? Yeah, and, and, and that's a great, great point. And, and John, I'm going to actually stick on technology for, for a minute because I think that one of the things that we see, I, you know, I, I went as, as you did and, and – um, and, and many others went down this past January to the PGA Merchandising Show in Orlando. And, of course, it was, you know, riddled full of, of a multitude of, of technology, um, some of it very interesting and, and very forward-thinking, and others just, you know, improvements on what's been out um, for, for a number of years. Um, but I wonder, John, sometimes if coaching um, relies too much on the technology and kind of misses opportunities to be able to help the player understand themselves. As, as Bill pointed out, you know, we're, we're dealing with a lot of numbers, and a lot of stats and things like that, which certainly can be useful in, the, in its proper context. But does technology, as he suggests, can also um, in some ways be detrimental and, and, and um, can we get too caught up in it as a coach if we're, if we're over-utilizing that technology? And how do we strike balance with that? How do we 
know when to use it and when not to use it um, as some examples. Um, go ahead. Well, the the this is a I, I agree with Bill 100% on this. Uh, one of the biggest mistakes that I see young teachers uh, make is they rely way too much on technology. They get enamored with TrackMan and and, and listen, all these launch monitors and and, every, and and video systems that they have now are great. But and the simulators are great, especially if you're in the cold weather state uh, or it's raining or whatever. All that information is great. But it needs to be limit. It needs to be used in a limited amount. It needs to be. Um, I I look at any any technology at like an X-ray. Okay. So when I broke my wrist, the doctor showed me the X-ray and said, "Here's your break." And I could I could clearly see the break. Okay. Now here's what we're going to do to fix it. And so that goes kind of goes along with what Bill just said. It's very important that you focus as a student, if you're a student out there listening to this, don't get so wrapped up in the technology that you're worried about every single number that you see because none of that information is going to help you when you go play in your club championship. None of it. You, the only score and the only number that matters in golf is your score. That's what matters. So you need to be focusing as a student okay, I'm going to take this little bit of information. Like Bill said, I, I agree 100%. It's a measurement. Here's where I am in the beginning of the year. And then I'm going to work on, you know, the teacher's going to tell me these three or four things to work on. And then at the end of the year or the middle of the year, let's measure it again. And then at the end of the year, let's measure it. I did that with our local high school team. Pretty much 90% of them made significant improvement from the first clinic to the to the last clinic that we had we had a 10-week clinic there was a couple that that improved a little bit but most of them saw significant improvement but i only used the video and i only used the launch monitor information on the first at the very first and at the very end and everything in between was as a teacher was me trying to fix whatever it is they need to work on so use it in limited amounts it is beneficial but don't get so caught up in it that that's all you're focused on because again the bottom line is your score. When you get out on the golf course, it's low scores are a lot more fun than the high scores. I couldn't agree more. Um, excuse me. You know, Bill, we, we've kind of defined really the, the differences uh, and similarities between a teacher and a coach. And obviously, in many circumstances, we're, we're really both. Um, you know, we, we are teachers uh, when it comes to teaching certain aspects of the of the golf swing and um, correcting different areas of, of difficulty that our students are having. And then we have a coaching side of us as well that we nurture that player along and, and dip some of the different areas that we talked about um, in order to help them be more competitive uh, when they get out there. But is there a time, and maybe you can give it through an example, where you have to be both? Um, maybe you've worked with a player for a little while, you're coaching them now, um, but maybe you have to turn that teaching hat back on um, momentarily in order to um, complete a um, particular point in, in that exercise. Um, is that something that you, from time to time, find yourself doing? And if so, maybe you can share an example of that. Yeah, Ted, it, it was it just had one about three hours ago. I had a young man who's a uh, just finished his sophomore year of high school and is going to be, he's going to be a mid-level division one player. He's got all the tools to do it. And um, we've been working a lot mentally with him 
but physically he ran into a little bit of an issue um, looking for a little more distance. And we had to make a little bit of an adjustment to his setup and then uh, his through swing, and we got him back to hitting shots in the pattern that he loved. And, you know, I think that's the thing we have to do, and that's why I don't feel technical. You know, we have to be mechanical and technical and understand the cause and effect of shots, but we also have to be able to communicate that to a player at the same time Mm -hmm. how they can mentally handle it. Getting back to what John said, we gamify practice a lot of bit and have players create their own pressure on themselves in in practice, making practice a heck of a lot harder than playing around the golf is. You know, I use an example um, in basketball. When I played college basketball, we'd play a team that would trap and have a full-court press. The coach would put six players on against us defensively against our offense. Then he'd put seven, then he'd put eight, and he'd set the shot clock at 15 seconds. So we get in the game, everything looked like it was slow. So we build game-like practice where we have players hitting shots into areas that are extremely tight, holding, you know, holding putts in a, inside a gate and things of that nature that really build pressure on themselves. Once they go out on the golf course, it looks easy to them. And I think that's a big piece of the puzzle. Right. Exactly. I agree. John, sort of the flip side of that, you know, you've worked with a student um, as a teaching professional and you um, have taught them the things that you need to, uh, to do out there on the lesson tee and you've identified that this particular individual has the skill set and the abilities to play in a, in a competitive fashion. Now you have to switch over and become the coach. How do you transition from Hi, I'm John Decker, your teach professional, to now I'm John Decker, your coach. How do you make that switch and that transition, and what's the first step that you take? The very first step I take is I get them out on the golf course. Um, I get them out. I get them away from the video cameras. I get them away from the lesson tee. I get them out on the golf course and, and put them in situations, um, you know, whatever it is that, that we I feel like they need to work on. I know – because if I'm at that point, I know their strengths, I know their weaknesses. Um, I'm going to probably um, do some things and go, all right, start out. Uh, let's go, and we're going to work on some of the things you're struggling with. It might be their bunker game. So I'll put them in real-life situations out on the course if I can uh, where they're hitting uh, some you know, bunker shots. But then I, I will finish the lesson with things that they do well. Uh, because I want them to leave the lesson with as much confidence as possible, knowing that at some point you just got to let them go and they've got to go. There's, there's times that I've let students go and, and I felt like they really had it and then they've gone and they haven't played well. And there's been other situations where I've, I've had players where I thought maybe they, you know, they were struggling or whatever. And for whatever reason, they played really well. So you never know when you let them go as a teacher or a coach you know, what's going to happen. You have an idea, and, and all you can do is prepare them. But I tell every one of my students, it's my job to, to coach you, but it's your job to practice and implement these things. And, and so if we, if we have that kind of a union where I'm doing my part, you're doing your part, then, then that's going to give us the best outcome. And, and, and then you just you come back uh, the next – when they're done with their round, uh, you get follow-up from them. I tell them, bring me your scorecard. Bring me – you know, I want to know how many greens you hit. I want, let's, 
want to know everything, you know, that you can do. And if I can go out and watch them play, I go out and watch them play. That always helps. But that's really difficult to do on a consistent basis because it just takes too much time. So, um, you know, just right. communication with them and is, is very important. Follow-up is very important. And then once you have the follow-up, you set a, a plan for the next next lesson. Very good. Um, that's, uh, uh, again, some, some great answers tonight, guys. Um, Bill, I want to I sort of paint a scenario here um, as a coach um, of a team. Um, it could be collegiate. It could be um, uh, any other team. But just put yourself in that position for the moment. And I want you to address um, this particular uh, scenario because I can guarantee you it happens um, probably more often than people would realize. You've got two players on your team um, who we're going to address in this scenario. Uh, one is, is quite well accomplished, um, able to um, perform many of the tasks needed, but has an extremely negative um, vibe um, shall we say, um, can, you know, uh, quite often because of their personality come across as narcissistic, even in that sort of thing. So I'm trying to paint a, a picture, if you will, of, of, um, sort of a, a negative player, certainly great, great, uh, skill set, but, um, a, a very negative, um, uh, player. Now you have a player who doesn't share the same, level of skill set as the first player, but has a much more positive uplifting and um, just a, a, a willing to, to get in there and grind it out. Sometimes it doesn't go the way they want, but nevertheless, they have that. How do you find a way to deal with both scenarios? Um, and how do you get the most of, of both players to be able to perform well on the team, but also deal with the differences in their personalities. Cause one can obviously be very detrimental to the team with negativity and, and uh, arrogance, if you will, for lack of better words. And uh, another who certainly has the positive side of things, but just doesn't seem to quite get it. How do you handle that scenario? It's a, uh... I find a pretty simple way to do it. Um, I'm at the point in the season now with my elite high school players that they're, they've got three, four, or five tournaments in the bag already. We have a group right. session on Saturday mornings on the range, and um, you can already start to see some have played good, some have played great wins, great finishes, but then there's that little lull that's going on. So one of the things I have mm. the players do is we'll hit five balls with five different clubs at five different targets. And I need them to verbally say out and even yell to me one thing that they liked about each shot, whether mm-hmm. it was the trajectory, whether it was the line, what, you know, what it was. We have to build that, that sense of there's something good in everything. Okay, I missed the shot, but I hit it on the front edge of the green. Things of that nature. Right. So then we'll go through, we'll do a couple of drills. Then I'll have, them do two, I'll have them hit five balls again, tell me two things you like. Go ahead and do three things that you like. And all of a sudden, that those slumped shoulders become better because they realize they're looking at the glass half full versus the glass half empty. And I know that's a little different way to do it, but, you know, it's mm-hmm. something that I found over time. The ones that have been positive, now all of a sudden they start hitting even better shots 
The ones that are negative right. are finding, okay, I, I wanted to draw that ball, and I, I hit it straight or pushed it, and they're all huffy about it. Well, what was good about it? It was still I hit my start line, and I hit my trajectory. Okay, that's pretty good. You're not going to get the ball to curve the way you want to perfectly every time, but if you get those two things, right. you're in good shape. So, I, you know, I, do, I utilize drills like that that bring everybody together. So it's not really focusing on the negative or the positive, but everybody's gaining mm-hmm. benefit out of it. In a sense, that's, that's great. I love that. You know, in, in a sense, really what you are is you're redirecting their focus um, from what typically they would, um, they would be looking at. Um, and, and I think that's, that's good, uh, you know, that, that you do that. Because, you know, one of the problems when you're – one of the interesting things, I guess, to, to, to go back to is, is when you talk about golf. I mean, golf typically is an individual sport. You know, you go out there and you, you certainly battle the em, uh, elements, but you're, you're essentially playing against yourself. But when you put into a team format, you know, there's other people that count on you to, to pull your weight and, and you count on them uh, to, to reciprocate. And if you've got some – you know, a, a scenario like like I suggested in the t- team, where you've got some players that maybe you're not quite as good, but but are, you know, there for the team, and then you've got others that you know feel that they should shine a little bit more, but have that negativity. Sometimes those those two kind of rub together, and sometimes it can work out, but many times, more often not, it creates animosity, and uh, that is not a good thing. So I like your answer. I think that's great that you know you get them to really focus on a specific task. And allow each side to, to really benefit um, from that task. And uh, more often than not, I'm sure, and I'm sure you would concur, uh, changes the dynamics and their thought process on how they handle um, and, and not focusing on, as you pointed out, whether they're drawing the ball as much as they like or at all, um, they're focusing on a separate task. Is that pretty accurate? Yeah, absolutely. That's where we're going with it. It's, you know, you got to find something good in everything as opposed to looking what's wrong. I always ask mm-hmm. players to focus on what needs to happen to make the shot go right. You know, be part of the solution right. as opposed to being part of the problem. Right, exactly. Um, no, great, uh, great answer. I love that. Um, John, one of the other things, you know, when we get into the, the thick of competition, and, um, you know, there's, there's always going to be ups and downs and, um, you know, struggles along the way. And sometimes you're just not going to make the grade. And, um, so it, it, it's a matter of, uh, again, similar to what Bill talked about refocusing the team's effort. So if you have a team that maybe just is not doing well in a at the beginning of the season, what do you do? Hello? I think we lost you, Ted. Yeah. Ted, are you there? I don't have him anymore, John. I don't either. I just text him. Okay. Hi, guys. Can you hear me better now? I can hear yep. you now. 
Okay, I'm sorry. I'm not sure if we had a little glitch there. My apologies. Uh, did you hear my question, John, or, or did you? Uh... Uh, you were halfway into it, uh, Ted, okay, and then I lost you. Uh, all right, let me very quickly recap it then. So you, you've got a team that, uh, you know, as Bill mentioned here just a moment ago, that you've, you know, you've started, uh, got a few tournaments uh, under your belt sort of thing. But let's say the team is, is just not, you know, um, being successful. They're just not winning. And um, obviously, uh, a little depression creeps in. How do you take that team now that's had a rocky start and sort of re-shift their focus or their momentum um, to start seeing positive results? In other words, if the team's starting out a little shaky in the early parts of the season, what do you do? What steps do you do uh, to turn that around and hopefully um, catapult them into uh, maybe some wins? Well, it starts with, you know, with the atti- my attitude. Uh, you know, I have to have an attitude, a positive attitude, like we kind of talked about. What Bill, I love what Bill said. I, I think that's a great little exercise to do with a group. Uh, I've never done that, but um, I think that's a great, a great way to do it. Um, I think one of the things that, that I try to do um, is I try to let the, any student, whether it's a, a golf team or whether it's a, an individual student, let them know that this is not life or death. You know, I don't want you going out there uh, because what happens is, is if you start putting pressure on yourself um, to perform, uh, most people are not going to perform well. You do. You, we all seem to play our best rounds or hit our best shots kind of when we're relaxed and when we feel, when we're having fun. So I try to do things to, to make it fun. Um, and, you know, obviously if they're not winning and they're not playing well, I, there's problems, and obviously you can't ignore those problems. I'm not going to, you know, deny that, de- go in denial. But um, I also would try to do, I like to do, one of the things I like to do is I like to play a golf course. So whatever the golf course they're going to play the next event, I actually like to play that golf course on the driving range. And I'll say, all right, we're on the first hole, and, you know, it's a dog leg ride, and, we're, and ha- you know, what tee, you know, where are you going to tee up on the tee marker? And everyone, you know, will hit their shot. Basically, I'll tell them go. They'll all hit their shot. They'll go through their pre-shot routine. And then I'll just ask them, all right, where'd your ball go? And one, one person might say it went in the fairway, next person in the rough. And then I tell them, all right, pick a club and let's go from there. So basically, I'm trying to get them to play golf because obviously uh, you're in the season. You can't make major swing hall changes in the middle of the season if they're struggling. So all you can do is take the game that they have at that point and try to maximize it and really emphasize the short game. And then we do a lot of competition in short game because that is a fast way to lower scores. Uh, you know, everyone can putt better. Everyone can chip the ball closer to the hole. Everyone can hit bunker shots, uh, you know, get them out, you know, uh, more consistently. Uh, we can all improve in those areas. No one is is, is perfect in those areas. And so those are areas that, that where you can, uh, when you're dealing with a team as a coach, where you have the best opportunity to shave strokes immediately um, and then just let them know that this is a long-term approach. And I tell this to every one of my students. I tell them, I care more about how you're playing down the road than maybe necessarily today. I mean, I, the, 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 what we're doing in, our, in the lesson today is I'm looking at this as a long-term approach down the road, whether you're going to play in college or whether you're going to just be a, a, a businessman or a woman out there in the world. 
Um, I'm, I want this to be a lifelong game and a long-term approach, and I'm giving you fundamentals that are going to hold up for the rest of your life. Um, so even if you have some struggles short-term-wise, we're not going to compromise on that and try to Band-Aid your, your problems. Well said. All right, guys, what a great way to wrap up um, this segment of Coach's Corner. I appreciate you guys, uh, as always, for, for coming on. And, you know, I, I always like to, to hopefully find some interesting discussions. And a lot of people sometimes get confused with, um, what we talked about tonight, um, whether, you know, what's the differences between um, a teacher professional and a coach? We hear this, these names and, uh, you know, sort of buzzing around the industry and, and have for, for many years. And, um, you know, uh, in the beginning, it was, you know, your, your, teach, your teaching pro or your teaching professional. And then we started hearing more about coaches. So a lot of people don't really understand what the difference is. So hopefully we've shed a little bit of light tonight. And I appreciate uh, the answers that you gave uh, uh, very thoughtful and and always uh, full of lots of meat, as they say, on the bones. So I appreciate it very much. I'm going to give you guys a chance, as always, to uh, uh, to share uh, any uh, ways that the the folks, if they want to reach out to you. I, I know you're busy, but um, and got lots going on. And and during this uh, social distancing, if you will, I know you're out there busy, uh, working hard uh, to uh, uh, to help uh, build this game up, um, even during these difficult times. So. Um, let's share with the folks some ways that they can reach out to both of you uh, if they if they want to um, connect and, and get some help with their game. So um, I'm going to go in different order this time. Bill, uh, why don't you go first and then John? Yeah, everybody, the easiest way to catch me is uh, just on my website, BillAbramsGolf.com. It's A-B-R-A-M-S, just BillAbramsGolf.com. That's got all my contact information and my facilities both in Florida and Illinois. And again, Ted, thanks so much for having us tonight. It's always a pleasure to be on your show. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Bill. And I hope you get some well-deserved uh, rest this this weekend. I know you've been hard at it for the last uh, few months, uh, even despite uh, all that's going on. And uh, um, hopefully you have an opportunity to enjoy some uh, uh, some great quality time with your family uh, through the holidays. So uh, have a great uh, July 4th. Um, John, go ahead. Well, thanks again, Ted, for having us on the show. And, Bill, I really enjoyed tonight's discussion, and it's great talking with you again. And to all the listeners out there, I want to wish you a happy and safe Fourth uh, of July. Um, for the listeners that want to get in touch with me, um, the, I'm on all the social media outlets, uh, John Decker Golf Instruction, um, and my, I spell my first name J-O-N, so John Decker Golf Instruction. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, I've got several hundred uh, videos on YouTube and LinkedIn as well. If you're in the Columbus, Ohio area and you want to reach out, uh, just reach me on social media if you want to do any private instruction. And I'm also doing online instruction. So if you're not in this area and you want to reach me for online instruction, I do that as well. Um, and look for my feature, Fairways to Heaven, and my instructional articles in the Golf Tips magazine, uh, where I'm doing writing articles for the magazine. I'm really excited about that. In my book, Golf is My Life, Glorifying God Through the Game, it's available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, and Walmart.com. So you can, if, uh, you can purchase the book uh, if you're interested in, in that book. And um, I'm always available for speaking engagements and uh, launching Bible studies as well. So, uh, But, again, thank you, Ted, for all you do for um, us and giving us this platform. I really, we, re we really appreciate it. Well, thank you, guys. And, um as I mentioned at the, the top of the show, um, 
Golf Tips Magazine, of course, is um, out there and available. And if you're looking to get somebody a great gift or some someone uh, other than yourself or yourself, uh, you can go to golftipsmag.com and subscribe today uh, right online. It's very simple. And uh, as John mentioned, uh, there's some great articles and some great tips in there, um, not only by his fellow professionals, but uh, by John himself as Fairways to Heaven. Uh, featured article is uh, a great article uh, for sure, and you definitely want to check out that. It's a, a long-running series, and we're looking forward to the next one, and also some great tips in there as well from many of the other professionals. So thank you guys, as always, for doing a great job, and I appreciate you. Stay safe and have a happy 4th of July to you and your, your loved ones, and I look forward to having you the next time on Coach's Corner here on Golf Talk Live. Thank you. Thanks again, Ted. Happy Independence Day to everybody. Thanks. Appreciate it. All right. You too. Bye-bye. All right, that was uh, John Decker and Bill Abrams uh, joining me on the Coach's Corner panel tonight. We're talking uh, a little bit about uh, some of the differences and the similarities between uh, golf teaching professionals and golf coaches. Hopefully, uh, we shed a little bit of light on that. And I apologize for a brief technical issue. Uh, It appears they lost me for a moment, so hopefully that won't happen again. Um, But anyways... um, just to remind everybody, of course, the show airs live every Thursday evening from 6 to 8 p.m. Central here on the blogtalkradio.com network. Uh, best way to go and find us is go to blogtalkradio.com, type in Golf Talk Live, and we will be there front and center. And during Thursday evenings from 6 to 8 p.m. Central, uh, it is a live broadcast, uh, but the broadcasts are auto-recorded. So um, if you've missed the show and uh, or you can't listen to it during a live broadcast, uh, you can just visit that link anytime afterwards and just scroll down to the on-demand section and you can check out all of the previously aired shows, including uh, a little bit later tonight's show, uh, and listen to them in their, in their entirety there. Uh, also, on Tuesday mornings, uh, I partner up with my good friend, LPJ professional uh, Cindy Miller, and we uh, host together another show called The Women of Golf, and uh, that we really hone and focus on on some of the issues uh, and feature some of the great players and uh, also teach professionals and business types as well. They're helping to elevate the game uh, for women's golf. And I'm very, very excited to announce, I just uh, confirmed it today, as most of you that follow that show, um, um, over the last several years, we have featured uh, the winners off of the Symmetra Tour. We actually started out this season, our seventh season on the women of golf, um, with uh, one of the early winners. And unfortunately, due to the pandemic, of course, as we all know, uh, the tour's uh, shut down uh, for a number of months as we uh, tried to get through this uh, this pandemic, and uh, many of them have started playing again. And the uh, Symmetra Tour is going to be firing up again, if you will. And I believe their first tournament is going to be the 24th to the 26th of this month. And um, the following Tuesday, uh, we will be featuring the winner of that event. But before that, on the 21st, uh, we will be uh, having on the show as our first guest, uh, who's been a pretty regular each season uh, to help sort of launch the Symmetra Tour uh, new seasons, is the Chief Business Officer, Mike Nichols. He'll be uh, joining us uh, early on the show from uh, 9 to 9.30 uh, Tuesday morning on July 21st. He'll be joining us here on the show, uh, on my Women of Golf show, excuse me, uh, Tuesday mornings at uh, 9 to 10 a.m. Eastern. Uh, on the blogtalkradio.com network. So again, go to blogtalkradio.com and type in Women of Golf in that particular case. And again, uh, you can join us live on Tuesday mornings or 
Uh, if you're not able to join us during the live broadcast, just scroll down to the on-demand section and the archive uh, section there as well, and you can listen to the previously aired show. So I'm really, really excited about that. We're happy to have them back on. We really missed having a lot of these young ladies, and I'm sure they've uh, even more missed not being able to play for, for several months. But um, we'll see what uh, we'll see what happens with the rest of the season. Hopefully uh, there'll be some exciting tournament play for, for everybody, and uh, I look forward to, uh, as, as does Cindy, look forward to, uh, having Mike join us back uh, in a couple of weeks. So, all right, my very special uh, guest this evening. Uh, most of you know him, but I'll tell you a little bit about him. Uh, he's a golf announcer known as uh, the voice of golf uh, for many, many uh, years. Uh, he is a now a senior editor at Golf Tips Magazine, and he is also the executive producer at the iGolfSports.com. Uh, channel, if you will, and um, he was the voice of HBO Sports from 1990 through 1995, uh, narrating Peabody, Ace, and Emmy Award-winning documentaries. Uh, he was the premier talent at Golf Channel from 95 to 2002 and hosted, wrote, and produced uh, 1,300 live one-hour episodes of four different shows, including one uh, called uh, Golf Talk Live, coincidentally. Uh, Academy Live, Viewers Forum, and Masters Highlights. Please welcome my very good friend and my very special guest this evening, Mr. Peter Kessler. Well, good evening, I sir. I am so happy to be with you. First of all, congratulations on your acquisition of Golf Tips Magazine, which people, of course, know publishes six times a year, and really the the step up of the first issue over the previous ownership and publisher is such a dramatic increase. It's a, it's almost vertical. It was, it, it's, it's so terrific. The first issue really is. And, and, you know, and congratulations on iGolf and, and I appreciate the opportunities you've given me in both places. I just don't understand why it has to be strictly volunteer basis either. So there's no money going to ever be involved <laughs> in any of these projects, right? All right. Listen, That's to, right. <laughs> to work with you, to work with you is worth it. Okay. So what's going on, Ted? <laughs> well, we got lots of good things. To thank you for your show. Let's go. Yeah, I will. I will. Um, very, very, very quickly. I, I knew you were going to start off this way. Um, very quickly, let me just remind everybody too, as, as Peter pointed out, uh, with um, the new acquisition of Golf Tips uh, Magazine, the first issue is on newsstands right now. It was actually came out June sixteenth, and uh, Peter, of course, wrote the uh, um, first cover story for the magazine since I've taken over uh, and it's entitled My Dear Friend Arnold uh, and it's got a great uh, picture of Arnold on the front and uh, one that I, th I think most of you have probably never seen or very few have seen uh, it's available literally just about anywhere go out and get yourself a copy it's a great great story that Peter shares um, with his good friend uh, the late Arnold Palmer the king of golf and uh, he's got another one coming out here in the latest issue. I'm not going to tell you what it is until it's officially uh, out there, but go and get it. Go visit uh, Barnes & Noble, uh, Books A Million, and any really newsstand around the country and, uh, and in Canada and get yourself a copy. And better yet, if you want to get all uh, six issues a year, go to golftipsmag.com and subscribe. It's uh, very, very well worth it. It's only 14 97 for a year subscription, so you definitely want to do that. All right, Peter, let's get into our discussion tonight, and we've got some really interesting uh, things that we're going to talk about, or, or I'm going to let you talk about. 
Um, you've pointed out that you've gone from, or that we've gone really from watching um, arguably one of the, the greatest, if not the greatest player, uh, Jack Nicholas, hit all kinds of uh, incredible one iron shots um, to go ahead and win major championships through his career, uh, particularly in the 60s and the 70s. Um, and now you say that we are at a point where rather than seeing one and two irons and other long uh, shots hitting into uh, very well-guarded greens, that it's really only uh, five clubs out of the 14 clubs that players are using. How did we get from hitting one irons from virtually every place, if you will, to hitting the easiest uh, five clubs in the bag on the Pro Tour? Well, it's a fascinating story, really, because when when golf was first golf and the way I would define golf is that you have free hitting, you have no interference by an opponent and each segment of a round of golf is completed by holding out by putting. So those elements all came together in 1404 or 1405. I was there. I can't remember if it was December of 04, January of 05, <laughs> but, and so, at that point, they were really using kind of wooden balls, but it was, you know, it, it, it was closer to the game that you and I played growing up than the game we see on tour now. And so after that, a new ball came, and it had a soft leather cover, and it was stuffed with a top hat full of feathers. And they would just open up a tiny little seam in the piece of leather and just keep shoving in wet feathers, which eventually when they were inside and then sealed would dry and they would expand and it was a hittable ball and it was naturally called feathery. So in 1856, Mm -hmm. there became a new ball and that was made out of gutta percha, you know, from, from South America and it bounces like a super ball or, or, or any kind of a tennis ball. And so when that material was discovered, that replaced the feathery at the end of the 1850s. And so all the guys who saw that it was coming tried to sell out all their featheries because the new ball was going to be better. But what they found out about the next ball, which was actually called the gutta percha or the gutty was its, you know, really its nickname. The problem with it was the surface was completely smooth and it was very difficult to send it where you wanted it to go. But people started to notice that when the, when the balls were scuffed up, that they would fly more aerodynamically true. So that's what led to dimples, the realization that the scuffing of a smooth surface would actually allow you to have lift and to be able to control direction. And so that ball was popular all the way from the late 1850s until 1900. So when Harry Varden and and J.H. Taylor, two of the original great triumvirate along with James Braids, the Scotsman, when they won their early open championships in the 1890s, they were still playing the gutta percha. In 1901, a fellow by the name of Haskell goes over to have lunch with his friend at BF Goodrich Tire Company. And while he's waiting, he's walking around the plant, he sees the pieces of, of, of rubber, and he bounces one, and he says, wow, this has got more lift certainly than a gutta percha ball. Maybe this could be the inside of a golf ball. 
and that became known, obviously, as the Haskell ball. That was the first modern ball. And really, it changed almost less than 10% in its composition in terms of a change all the way until the 1970s. So Bobby Jones in the 20s and in 1930 when he won the Grand Slam really played a very similar golf ball to the one that Jack Nicklaus was hitting in the 1960s. And if you take a look at the distance comparisons between the two, you find out that the reality is one that Jones happened to also be the longest player of his time, as Jack was in his time, and yet they both chose to hit four irons 180 yards, Jones in the 20s in 1930 and Jack from 1950 all the way until the mid-70s. And so what happened in the 19th, so you could really compare – you could really compare eras, um, unless he wants to, you could compare eras very successfully right through the Nicholas era, say through 1974-5, when he had won, therefore, most of his major championships. So you could compare because the ball of 1930 was the ball of 1970 still, almost 100% so, hence the same yardages Jones and Nicholas had 30 years apart. But in the 1970s, Titleists started to look at dimple patterns. And they came up with a pattern that was called icosahedron. And a friend of mine said, oh, that's Bernie Hedron's house. And so the icosahedron was an unusual take on resurfacing the ball. And they started looking more at aerodynamics. And they started looking more at lifts. And what could they do to the cover to make changes. So in the 70s, changes started to be made. But it wasn't until 1982 that Jack Nicklaus noticed that the new ball then, the 384 by Titleist, which had 384 dimples, was a much better ball. All of a sudden, there was a better ball, significantly better, 1982. And Jack Nicklaus was pointing that out to everybody, including the United States Golf Association. So he said the 384 is too easy to hit. It's too easy to hit in a crosswind. You can control it better. You can change your trajectory. You can do more things with it. And the negative effects have been reduced because the amount of curvature was then reduced. So that was in 82. Now, in 1991 and 2, Callaway started to release their original Big Bertha, which was the first big-headed driver. And, of course, the driver sizes now are even bigger than the Big Bertha in the early 90s. So what you had happen starting in 93 was the balls had become significantly better. Now there was a piece of equipment that made it easier to hit them straight. The harder you hit it, the straighter it went. In the days before that on tour, the driver was the hardest club to hit, the hardest, because it had the least loft. The face was closer to vertical than any other club. The more vertical it is, the more difficult it is to hit it straight, and the, and the less to, and the more difficult it is to be able to control side spin. So now the driver all of a sudden in the early 90s was becoming the easiest club to hit. Now from 1993 through 2003, 
the average distance on tour increased just over 27 yards per player, which was a net average of 10% between 93, combination of the ball, which was now the Pro V1 of 2000, which was the latest iteration of a ball that was the manufacturers were taking advantage of the regulations now starting in 2000 to really use science and physics to try to launch the ball farther than ever. All of a sudden, distance went from being 20% of the examination on tour to then 50%, and today in 2020, it's now 80%. Distance used to be relative. So if Jack was playing with a slightly shorter hitter in his and the other player's prime, Jack would be 15 yards ahead, 20 yards ahead, whatever it was, but it wouldn't be a crazy number. And Jack, who was a longer player, could get to the green where the other guy might have to lay up in front. But now it's no longer relative distance that's interesting to manufacturers and the players who are on the tour. It's absolute distance. Well, absolute distance is problematic. Imagine having in baseball, 900-foot home run is the average instead of somewhere in the high 300s. The ball would get out of the ballpark literally itself so quickly you couldn't even follow the flight, just like you can't follow a golf ball anymore when it's hit by a good player because it gets out there too quickly. So from 93 till from 2003 to today, the combination of the Pro V1 and subsequent improvements have added another 28 yards. So you pick up 55 yards in difference from 1993 to 2020. So Phil Mickelson this year at 50 is now hitting the ball, guess how many yards? 55 yards longer than he did when he was 30. So I'm sure it has nothing to do with In-N-Out Burger. We know it has nothing to do with his physical routine, which (laughs) is not much. Sometimes he's on and sometimes he's off. So now you have right. a golf ball that flies from the tee 55 yards farther than it did previously. And so now absolute distance has become the holy grail. And as a result of that, we have players driving on tour par four holes that used to have to be reached with a mid-iron. And so they're literally driving greens. I saw a video last week of a fellow who almost holed out on a par four and the hole was over 400 yards, but he holed out almost from the tee, left it an inch from the hole. And I said, well, then it's not a par four anymore, is it? Now it's a par three if you can hit it in one, if you're, if you're a long hitter with ability and today's equipment. And remember for them, you know, that equipment into, as it's individualized is so fine-tuned that it's as accurate as the prescription in your eyeglasses. That's how much detail goes into perfecting the matchup, and that's why fitting – is a rage among young people because they think if they get fit properly, they'll play better, which they might if they have a good swing. But at least you'll have the implements in your hand that you can use to maximum effect. So the guys on tour, they're getting their stuff tweaked every week. They get new wedges every week, so the grooves are deep and fresh and sharp. And so you have equipment now that doesn't require using everything in your bag. Joe's, you know, at one time carried 18 clubs and would hit them all. Jack, of course, carried 14, but he'd hit them all. If you hit your one iron, you're going to hit every other club too. And so now we have a situation where pro golf is uninteresting because they only have to hit their driver and four wedges or a nine iron sometimes, and that's the whole game. 
and that's a bore as a spectator and as a fan, and as somebody who wants to see great approach shots. You know, if there was no such thing ever as a five-iron recovery from an awkward angle over a bunker, you don't want to necessarily have to go over at the green, and then it slopes away, that was a tough shot. So Seve could hit it, Arnold could hit it, Walter Hagen could hit it, Tiger could hit it, but we can't hit it. We can hit a wedge. So the recovery shot with the mid-iron is now a thing of the past. And if there hadn't been the five-iron recovery shot from the awkward angle, there would have been no Walter Hagen. There would have been no Tiger Woods. There would have been no Phil Mickelson. There would have been, you know, so there would have been no Seve Ballesteros for sure. So we've taken away a critical part of the game, which is approach play. And so now the driver's worth 80% of your score, where it used to be 20. So everything's out of whack. Yeah, it's. Uh, I would agree 100% with that. You're you're exactly right. I want to move on to um, the women's game. Um, how would you define the state of women's golf? Do you think they're using more of the clubs in the bag? I like to call it the equipment fits the field of play. Well, I I would say that the the women's game is much much more significantly interesting than the men's game because they pretty much play the game that the men used to play. They're, they still have to hit second shots. You know, remember last year when uh, Jennifer and Maria played those, <laughs> excuse me, last six holes at Augusta National for that women's event, which was a unique format, should have been more rounds at Augusta National. But nevertheless, we saw them play 13 through 18. And on 13, they both hit driver, smash the hybrid. On 15, they hit driver, smash the hybrid. Well, that's what used to be the deal. I mean, Arnold used to hit three wood in the 13 in the 1960s, and he hit three wood in the 1958 Masters, too, for that matter, and made eagle on 13. And he used to hit three wood in the 15. And, of course, in 1997, Tiger was hitting wedge, and so that was the beginning of the end of the original golf course. But the women's game is much more interesting one, because it replicates the same number of clubs used as the men's game used to be, and they still have to hit legitimate approach shots. It's not drives and pitches. It can be drives and anything. Now, there are some women on the tour who can hit the ball prodigious distances, but, but it's still relative distance rather than unbridled absolute distance. So it's much more fun to watch them play because they're actually playing golf and having to hit pro shots to well-guarded greens. And so also, too, you know, a woman's swing is much closer to a recreational player's swing in its tempo and its speed and its rhythm because it's a little slower than the men's because men are stronger. I mean, it's just that simple. It's just a question of anatomy. Excuse the train in the background. And so... The women's game, I think, is absolutely in the best shape that it has been in in a long time. It has an incredible group of young players from around the world who are playing some absolutely world-class, first-class golf. The problem with women's golf is they need internationally marketable superstars. You know, if you look all the way back, say, to even Bobby Jones in the 1920s, 
he was the best player, but he was also the best looking, funnily enough. He was as handsome as a movie star. Look how good Jack looked after he let his hair grow in 1970. Look how good Arnold looked until the day he died. Adam Scott, Tiger Woods. You know, the list is absolutely enormous of the number of great male players who were also particularly good looking. And the women also had that particular um, problem where it's historically true that they weren't as attractive as the men, but they were such interesting characters, Patty Berg and Babes of Harris. And, you know, it was just such a great group that founded the 13 players in 1950, the LPGA, the Bauer sisters, and they were absolutely gorgeous. But it's important because women's golf gets short shrift. They get very little TV time. They get very little exposure. They don't make much money from TV deals. And so as a result of that, you've got a situation where you need marketing help. And marketing help means players who can really play, who are really interesting, who win, and also happen to be marketable from a looks point of view. Now, you can say, well, that's sexist. Well, no, it's not, because sex sells, and it has sold on the men's tour for 100 years, from Jones to to all of the players today. It's just a funny thing that there's a matchup between matinee idol looks on the tour and and great playing. Greg Norman, I mean, you know, the list is, you know, it's certainly in this Nick Faldo, Nikki Price, everybody, Asteros. I mean, you know, people went crazy, but... That's what women's golf has to have to plug the hole of not getting enough attention. And so if, like Brooke Henderson is a great example, if she were Mm -hmm. to become a dominant player who won regularly, she's such an attractive young woman. You know, she just looks like the girl next door. You don't have to be some exotic thing, and you don't want that. You want the girl next door kind of deal. And Brooke has that. She's got a billion watt smile. So it's an international game, which presents language barriers. So that's problematic. So even more so, what do you do to provide the marketing spark that they need? You hope that the best players become marketable players. They don't have to be good looking. Then, have a great personality, be interesting on camera, make it so people overlook your looks, you know? And Dustin Hoffman was a great movie star, but he wasn't exactly a handsome guy. And so it's not required if you have personality, if you have game, if you can fill it up with other stuff, then looks become less important. And so those are the things that I like about women's golf are that it's an international game. It more closely replicates the game that the men used to play and they're an international marketable superstar away from getting the TV contract, from the players getting better sponsors. There's so many good players who don't even have deals who bought their own clubs and stuff. It's a tragic situation there. And part of it is we need to do a better job of marketing. So which people should we try to market who are winning enough to be marketable? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, exactly. And again, I agree with with what you said um if peter if we're if the requirements from getting ball from tea to green is simpler now than um it used to be how do we in today's era 
identify what it takes to be considered a great player as opposed to when Jack was in his prime? Well, it's tougher now because you could easily compare Jones to Hogan and Hogan to Nicholas because they basically all play the same equipment, like literally, literally played the same equipment, except Jones finished his career with Hickory and then steel shafts really became popular in 1933 when Byron Nelson was the first guy who was going to be in his prime soon to make the switch from Hickory to steel, which took about 10 seconds. This business about Hickory being whippy and, harder to control and you have to do timing issues. That's completely untrue. Have you ever looked at one of Bobby Jones clubs, things like a piece of, it is like a piece of steel. It's just that steel lets you to make a more upright swing than hickory because there is more torque in hickory. So yes, the change made sense because it was easier to hit, but yet hickory wasn't hard for great players to hit and it took them all two minutes to make the switch sarazen still won before steel and after steel came into vogue and so because you can do all that comparison in the previous century really right up to just about 2000 when the pro v1 came along because remember tiger's distance was less a function of equipment and more a function of oh my god is he unbelievable you know he's you know one of those once in a hundred years kind of guy or four times in a hundred years kind of a guy so in tagger's case it had less to do with the equipment because he could have done it with any equipment so now i think it's tough because you know you look at the leaderboards you know just in the last few weeks and you look at some of the top 10 names and you say I never even heard of that person. You know, my son's in a pool, and I don't usually like to guess who's going to win, but I help him with his picks. And I said to him recently, I said, it's going to be really hard this year. I said, because driving is so disproportionately a part of the deal that if you can bomb it and just hit good shots from 80 yards and make your putts, you're going to win without displaying a complete game. And that's the problem. We're not displaying a complete game anymore, but still, it's not the player's fault. It's not Dustin Johnson's fault that he never hit a club except in 2018, the whole calendar year, the longest second shot that Dustin Johnson did to any par four in the world, the longest club was a seven iron except for one occasion where he hit a six iron second shot, which he referred to as a long iron. Okay, so that's where we are now. You know, that used to be the middle club in the bag. I mean, Bobby Jones used to warm up with his four iron because he thought it was a barometer of how the clubs would play as they became less and more lofted, that that was the middle club of the set. That's why it's called the middle iron. It's not because the number, it's because it's the middle club in the bag. So now if you're only using five clubs, it's hard to compare yourself with anybody unless they too are using five clubs. So nobody today will ever be able to do anything that makes Tiger's record any less significant or Jack's than it is now. And it's going to be harder to win major championships, even if you're the best player in the field, because now it's not that the fields are deeper. It's that anybody in the field can win because the driver's 80 rather than 20% of the game. So I think the problem we're going to have as we look back on this period of time is that you can't really compare the guys of today to previous generations, but you can compare them to each other. So 
Right now we have Rory with four majors, but none since he was 24, and now he's in his 30s, so none since 2014. And you've got players like Dustin Johnson with 21 victories, but one's a major, but a lot of the events are nonsense, the Hawaii stuff and things that people, are, except his bank account, are just going to forget the moment that it's over. And so I would say now it's going to be harder for the better players to win because 80% of it's just to hit your tee ball far and straight. And the harder and faster they swing, the straighter the ball goes. Exactly the opposite. It used to be the hardest club. It's the easiest club. So if you're going to you know, have a little pitch in, it's boring TV. And this thing about distance and chicks dig the long ball kind of thing, it's not really true. You know, when guys say, oh, my right. God, Bryson DeChambeau hit it to 390, the human eye, if you stood on a tee with Bryson DeChambeau and you watched him hit a drive, first of all, the human eye can't tell the difference between 280 and 320 in the air. You can't actually tell. And because the ball gets out so quickly now that the ball speeds have so dramatically increased, you can't see it until it gets to the very top of its apex before it then goes forward and comes down to the ground. And you can only see it for a second. When I first used to follow Tiger on, I followed Jack in the 70s, but you could see the whole flight of his ball like you could see your own ball, right? Right from the time he hit it, you never had to like wait and pick it up in the sky. And so you could watch every one of Jack's shots. I found out with Tiger that the only shots that were really going to be fun were part three shots because you could follow the ball. And so you right. can't tell how far it's going. And if they write it on the screen, I don't know why it's interesting. If you can't see it and you can't discern the difference between 280 and 320 if you're standing there, why is that of interest to anybody whatsoever? To which I say it shouldn't be. Yeah, it, it's it, it's a shame, really, when you look at, at at golf tournaments today. They're they're certainly not as interesting. I don't watch most of them. I'll certainly tune into the majors, but I don't watch a lot of them uh, for that very reason. It's not interesting. Um, it, it's I would much rather um, you know watch a, a par three contest than some of the major tournaments. Um, just for that reason alone, is is it's just they've reduced it to basically a pitch and putt. Um, in, in my opinion, let's talk about the realities of today. We, we're going through this uh, pandemic, and as a result, um, some of the things that we're not going to see, uh, at least in the interim, uh, are spectators at events, um, having to monitor social distancing, of course. Um, we're not going to see patrons at the Masters, which has been um, certainly part of the enjoyment of the event besides the tournament itself. And we're not likely going to see fans at this year's U.S. Open, which is going to be held this September at Wingfoot. How is this going to affect the game, do you think, across the board? Well, I think we're already in – we've already got a big problem right now because, you know, we already have no fans for events, and yet you still got players testing positive for COVID-19, and you're having a few every week. So like a lot of the states in our country that have opened up too aggressively where the uh, infection rate has, you know, completely gotten out of control and all of a sudden we're, we were over 50,000 people yesterday who were identified with the virus, you know, and that set a new record. And we're, you know, we're several months into it now. So, 
you know, it's not getting better. And, and people are, you know, restarting or, or shutting down some of the openings. You know, you can't have a drink in a bar. There's so much stuff that people already can't do that I think there's a good chance that we may see no more golf played after a few weeks. They have three or four more infections each week. It's, it's too many. That means you've opened up too soon. So I don't know that we're going to make it to September and the open at Wingfoot. But if we do, for, for one, I would be thrilled to never see a fan on the golf course ever, ever, ever again. It's funny. It, uh, many years ago, Paul McCartney put out a, a DVD of a particular concert he did, and there were made way too many shots of people who were fans hugging or singing or whatever it was. But guess what? Fans don't want to see other fans at the concert. They want to see Paul McCartney. But at a golf wow. course, you definitely don't want to see fans. I don't want to see fat guys with, with with black socks all the way up to their knees and people being drunk <laughs> and calling out things inappropriately and, and really ruining telecasts with Baba Booey and getting the hole and disturbing players at the top of the swing. The behavior of the fans has gotten unruly. You know, it used mm-hmm. to be, and you know, many years ago, you know, it was silence. Think of Jack winning the 86 Masters. Not a peep until it was time to cheer. Dead quiet. It's not true anymore. You know, it's more like the 16th hole that they play in Phoenix every year that's just, you know, a you know, place to go and drink and socialize. And a lot of people who go there aren't even golfers. But, you know, they, they, know, they, they know how to boo if a player doesn't hit the, the, the surface of that, you know, the, where is he supposed to? There, where the flag is. Oh, so now they cheer if he misses it. They cheer if, they, if he hits the green. So that's, that's mm-hmm. a, a, a curious example of an extreme situation, because, but it points out how different it's going to be without fans. I think at the Masters, it's going to change the, the scores upward because if you think about Let's take the sixth hole at Augusta National. It's a par three. And the fans are real tight around the green, especially behind the green. I've played that hole. If you're five feet long on six, it goes another 40 yards, unless you're playing in the Masters when people stop it and you have a simple little chip. Also, the way the Masters golf course is designed is that if a ball gets into the pine needles going sideways, if you just off a little bit, it carries you into major trouble. But with fans lining the hole, you've got a human wall. That's why you hate to see right. grandstand on the last hole so close to the green. Because the players know if they blow it into the stands, they get a free drop in a place they're going to get it up and down 80% of the time. So there was no penalty for hitting it into the crowd. Actually, rather, a kind of a reward. You know, Arnold used to say to me, I said, how did you how did you decide what to aim at on par threes when, you know, there were so many people behind the green? And Arnold said, oh, I just pick out a white shirt and try to nail it. And, you know, now there's not <laughs> going to be any white shirts. And so right. balls are going to run sideways more. Balls are going to go over greens more. But I think the quiet for those watching at home will be a delight. You don't, it's an unnatural sound. You know, when you go to the golf course, one of the reasons I don't like if somebody plays music is because it's, it's, it, 
as much as I do love music, I play the guitar, I listen to it all the time. I've seen Paul McCartney 40 or 50 times at this point. So you know, I've got an obsession there, and it's something that I really love. But the sounds of nature on a golf course, the the, the rush of the wind through the trees, a, a, a bird landing in the water, uh, and an animal sliding into the water, um, the sound of just the way the, the sound of your sandwich on a bunker shot. If music's playing, you miss that. And to me, it's like the members of an orchestra, the wind, the grass, the trees, the wind, everything combines, you know, a ball plopping into the water. I, I want to hear that sound. I hope it's not my ball, but I, you want to hear that sound. So <laughs> na- nature and golf have a very strong relationship right from the very, very beginning. You know, it can be, there's a place, there's a, 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 an onlyness to being on a golf course where it's, you know, when you're hitting your shot, you're, you're not aware of who's there. You know, if you're, if you're focusing on just your shot, you know, and there is no crowd noise, it's just nature and quiet sounds, but at a professional tournament, you know, it's like, you know, going to the circus. And so I, for one, as a fan of golf and someone who likes to play golf, I would prefer that there be none of that noise and that we do get, the sound of nature and maybe you can pick up the wind blowing if the crowds aren't screaming and stopping balls and drinking too much. And we're in the middle of a virus. So I believe it's going to be a long time, Ted, until, you know, until spectators are allowed in because the very nature of spectating a golf event means that there's zero chance of social distancing. Even now at the masters, it's funny. I remember, when I went in 1995 with Arnold and Winnie Palmer, that was on, he was 65. He just turned 65. And that was his last masters as a competitor. So he played his 36 holes and you know, missed the cut, but he played his 36 holes. Winnie and I hmm. followed him both days. We, we never missed a shot. It, it was just, wasn't very many people there. You didn't have to go by the rope. I remember walking up 18 one day and being 15 feet from the rope, but there was nobody at the rope and nobody in between. And it's Arnold Palmer and it's his last masters. You know, all that changed after tiger. And unfortunately I would, I, I would, I would, I would stake a dollar on it. Cause I'm not usually somebody who bets on anything, but I would say conservatively that when I was at the masters last year, that there were five times as many people on the golf course. And the problem with Augusta National from a spectating point of view is the fact that it's built on the side of the hill, which is 45 degrees. So the holes go down the hill like number 10 and like number 9, and they uh, 9 on the tee shot but uphill on the second shot. Number 18 at Augusta National I mean, that's like walking up a ski slope. Until you've done that walk, I remember when I went with Winnie, that, and that was my first Masters, it was 95, the first day, and Winnie and I were walking up the 18th hole to watch Arnold hit his second shot, and I said, Winnie, I, I can't catch my breath. And she said, oh, silly. She said, we're walking straight <laughs> up a building. She said, it's straight up there. She said, look. <laughs> and I looked. And so literally for a member there, the course is so hard around the greens. I don't know why people really want to be a member there. It's an extremely difficult golf course if you're not a very low handicap. I mean, I'm a decent player, and when I played there on March 16, 2002, and the reason I remember the date is the next day 
on March 17th, 2002, I was going to host and did the Bobby Jones Centennial birthday. He was born on March 17th, uh, 1902. So they said to me when they called me to ask me to host this dinner, what would you like as your fee? And every time somebody mentions Bobby Jones and a fee, I'm a sucker because I don't want to charge anything. And so I kept silent for a minute. And she said, well, I could arrange for you to play at, uh, she just got the, uh, out. And I said, I'm in as long as we can also play the par three course. And she said, that's a done deal. So March 16th, I played the the par three course. Uh, If you never played another golf course again, and you only allowed to play that, you wouldn't miss much. It's so hard. They make it look so easy. Those greens are the size of your bathtub, it, and they're all tilted. I mean, you're, you're, you're hitting short irons, but it's impossible. And the chip, they make it look so easy at the par three contest. Even, you know, Jack and Gary in their 80s, just, you know, no hope making ones and stuff. <clears throat> so that was a treat. And then you go play the big course. <clears throat> Excuse me, Ted. And on the first hole, I thought it was the hardest green and I still might think it's hardest green on that golf course, but it was certainly when I got to that green on March 16th, I said, this is the craziest green I've ever seen because it, it had a hundred sections and each section featured almost like a coffin like structure where the literally the ground rose created a rectangle. It did, wasn't as tall as a coffin. It was obviously, but it was shaped like one, but yet it had ramps. So if you were going at the, at, so you could go the the length of it, you'd go put up the ramp, but it's only a coffin length, and it's only a coffin distance in length. And so if you go up the ramp and you have just a smidge too much speed, you go down the ramp on the other side. You could be there for a week. And if you have to put so that you're only looking at the, the shortest part of the uh, of the coffin, you know, from side to side, and you have to go up the little ramp and then hold it on a three-foot section, it's crazy. And I'm a good putter. So I remember getting the 14, <coughs> which is the great par four hole that has no bunkers. And people remember that's the one with two sections. There's a lower one on the right and an upper one on the left. And you don't want to be on the wrong section unless you're putting uphill to the left. You don't want to be putting downhill to the right. So the pin was back right when I played. And I was just short and right of the green and two. I was in good shape. It didn't look, you know, fairly straightforward. Maybe 60 feet, though, but straightforward. And so I decided, well, I'm going to get a wedge onto that section. And I landed it there, but it was like three inches too short. It came back to my feet. And I said, oh, okay, I'll take a six iron and I'll make sure I get this all the way to the hole. I did. It came back to my feet. I took out a putter. I decided, okay, I'll just roll it along the ground. I should be able to get it around the hole. came back to my feet. So I left my position. I walked all the way up to the hole. I walked behind the green and I went, wow, there's only one way you can putt this, which is, you have to intentionally go 10 or 12 feet past the hole to make sure that you have still a makeable, but certainly not an easy now, 10 to 12 feet putt. So then I went back down to the side, I putted, I knocked it onto the back fringe, knocked it in from 15 feet, made my seven. And so for people who are members there, 
just impossible. Now, the next night was interesting because, you know, Bobby Jones, you know, the, the golden, goldenest hero of the golden age of sports. And, of course, he was, you know, immensely popular when they formed the Masters during the Depression, which is really how the thing got done. And Bobby Jones leaning on all of his relationships, you know, in the classic era of sports writers, you know, um, Grantland Rice and, uh, and Red Smith. I mean, an incredible number of great writers. And what happened was in the early days of the Masters, what, the first Masters was in March. And it was scheduled so when the Grapefruit League, the you know the the, the the games between professional baseball teams that were held in Florida to get ready for the season, the sports writers at the end of that of that period would then take a train north to go back generally to New York or Chicago where the big papers were. So Clifford Roberts, who co-founded the Masters and Augusta National with Bobby Jones, arranged for a private car when the exhibition season was over to take all the sports writers from Florida up to Augusta National. And so they did that the first year. They paid all of their expenses. They made Grantland Rice a member, the preeminent writer of his day, close friend of Bobby Jones, an avid golfer. I don't know necessarily a good golfer, but certainly an avid golfer, really loved the game. And that's what helped put it on the map, was that Bobby Jones was still popular, and the sports writers put the sucker on the map. So the March 17th of 2002 at the dinner, it was a thousand people in black tie, and it was the largest ever gathering of Jones relatives. Definitely, the entire extended family was there. All of the friends that were still living, all of the law partners, anybody he'd ever done business with, people from Coca-Cola, which is how Bobby Jones really made his money was by buying Coca-Cola stock. And actually, it was baseball player Ty Cobb who was the first one to tip him off to buy it. And then, of course, the guy who ran Coca-Cola, Mr. Woodruff, said, uh, Bobby, just just load up, dude. And so Jones made his money that way. So when I got to, you know, well before I got to the dinner, I knew that this particular crowd was going to know every Bobby Jones story that there ever was. And, like, what could I possibly tell them as an opening remark that at least 10 of them didn't know? So I had one story. The story was this. I said, many years ago, the time it was about 12 years ago i said i got home around midnight from a business trip and i got into bed just after midnight and a little while later my wife janet said to me oh woke me up and said honey we're gonna have the baby tonight and i said you're not gonna believe this i said but now it's march 17th in fact you know what that is that's bobby jones's birthday we're gonna have a child on bobby jones's birthday and she looked at me and said, it's my birthday, too. So she was born on March 17th. And so my youngest son was born on March 17th. So I figured when I gave the, the remarks, nobody else had been in the bedroom that particular night. And it was probably a safe story to tell. That was still a Bobby Jones story. But I can still remember the light was on. And I said to her, Bobby Jones's birthday, and with her soft blue eyes, she looked at me and said, it's my birthday, too. So it was a, it was, it was a great <laughs> way to start the evening, and it was a fantastic experience. And, you know, and, and, and so it's the only tournament now, though, Ted, that can adjust to, and this really goes back to the beginning of our conversation, that can adjust to the fact that the regular, that the equipment no longer fits the field of play. It's 900-foot home runs instead of 
420 foot home runs if you really get one. Mm-hmm. And so right. they've essentially bought up the whole city. They just bought the last strip mall that was closer. They bought a street and turned it into a T for the fifth hole. But here's the interesting thing, Ted. Last year, the year before last, they bought the ninth hole of the adjoining golf course, which is Augusta Country Club. And in 1930, before Bobby Jones went and won the four majors, the only person to ever do it in one year, and for him it was the two opens and the two amateurs because he was an amateur. But earlier that year he decided to play a couple of tune-up events, and one of them was at Augusta Country Club. And after it was all over and after the Masters started and Jones started to get older, he would he would point over to Augusta Country Club through the trees and say, that is where I played my best golf in 1930 before the majors began, which could have been true given that he had an 18-shot lead with five holes to play. And then there was a rainstorm, so they sat it out. Baseball player Ty Cobb was with him. So Jones makes a couple of sloppy doubles and whatever coming in, and he wins by 13. And Ty Cobb just, according to Jones, dressed him down like no one had ever done before. You know, and said that's not how you compete, and this and that and the other thing. But so about 18 months ago, Augusta National acquired the ninth hole, which runs contiguous to the 13th hole, and it goes past the 13th tee. So now they have 25 more yards to move the tee back. But they haven't done it. They haven't moved it back. And if they move it back and they just move it five feet more to the left, then you won't be able to go over the trees on the left. And that's what I don't understand about the present tee is if they just positioned it slightly left of its current position, then you'd be forced to hit a draw around the corner where now – Guys like Bubba just aim it over the trees with a cut, and then they've got a wedge in. That's not a golf hole anymore. That's not in anything anymore. Not the intention of the hole. It was meant to be a par four and a half. That if you if you were in position, you could have a go. So you could make a three or a four, but you could also make a seven if you found yourself in the trouble that's in front of and behind that particular green. You got water and bunkers and hills and OB left, and so. He didn't move the tee back, and I keep paying attention to it. And that makes me believe Fred Ridley, who was a U.S. amateur champion and now runs Augusta National and the Masters, Fred Ridley is going to be the guy to address the issue of drivers going from 20% of the the importance to 80% because he's refusing to move the tee. What does that mean? That means he's putting out a message. That means he's saying to the USGA, I'm giving you a chance to fix this. And it's a funny thing, too, because it's not entirely the United States Golf Association's fault. They made up a set of rules for manufacturers. And historically, really, until the what we talked about earlier, the dimple pattern change in the 70s and the 384 ball in the early 80s, you know, there hadn't been you know, there, there there hadn't been reason to do anything as far as USGA was concerned because manufacturers weren't taking advantage of physics with whatever the current rules were then. But they are taking advantage of them now. The USGA did not intend for there to be unbridled distance and to test the walls of physics, but the manufacturers figured out 
how to use science to get us to where we are today. So it's more a question of the manufacturers figuring out, you know what, this is a gray area, and those guys aren't scientists, and so we are, and so we're going to take advantage of this loophole of this opening, and that's why the distance increased as the manufacturers figured out a way under the rules to do that wasn't really the USGA's intention, but they're responsible for the rules and they have way more than enough evidence to conclude that they need to tighten things up. And that means you do two things. There's only two obvious conclusions you can draw to make this change. And it has nothing to do with rough or the golf course. You leave the golf courses alone. What you do do, you do it in a couple of steps. If you go back to the 2000 Pro V1, the first one, that's now the ball that's uh, 28 yards longer in 2020 than it was in 2000. So if you go back to the 2000 molds, all of a sudden there is no R&D that everybody's screaming about. There is no research. They didn't throw the mold away. You make the balls out of the 2000 mold for those players only only if you're on tour and playing the majors. But you let recreational players buy that ball so they can still play what the pros play. But why would a bunch of plonkers like us want to hit a ball that goes shorter? I won't, but you make it available. And so you're talking about 200 guys out of 70 million of people that play golf at least once a month around the world. So there's, 20, there's 28 yards. Now the driver head size are 460-ish, so drop it down to 360. Those two changes will negate about 35 yards and still leave a 20-yard increase from 1993. We can roll with 20 yards. You can't roll with 55, not on courses that don't play the way they were meant to. So those are the two fixes. I haven't discussed it with Fred, but there's zero chance that's not that it isn't exactly what he's also thinking. And I'm telling you, Teddy, I think they're not moving the tee back as a warning shot across the bow. If you don't fix this USGA, we're going to fix it. How? We're going to order up a tournament ball, and it'll be the one that Peter Kessler and I discussed, the Pro V1 from 2000, 28 yards shorter. And you guess what we're going to do next year? We're going to limit the driver head sizes. So he can do those two things at the Masters because it's an invitational event. You play by their rules. Mm -hmm. You call the people who show up to watch patrons instead of fans or spectators. So it's an event unto itself controlled by them, not controlled like the U.S. Open is by the USGA, not controlled like a PGA Tour event by the PGA Tour. This stands alone. So they're the one group of people who can actually make the changes in consecutive years by reducing the ball back to the 2000. Next year, reduce the head size. People are going to catch on. The USGA is going to have to climb on board. And that's how we're going to get from where we are today to where we were a little while ago, many yesterdays ago. So, that's going, to be, that's going to be the final fix is those two things. But then what's going to happen? The manufacturers will figure out a way to exploit that. They'll do something to the head, the 360. Guess what? Then we'll make it smaller. The ball, if the ball starts to do, uh, combine with the club to create more distance than we want it, you roll it back again. But it's only two items. 
the molds exist, and it takes 10 minutes to go to your mold for drivers and go, well, we're now we're doing, it's gotten 320. We just went down from 460 to 360 this year. It's 320, boys, until they get it right. You don't have to do anything with anything else. You just have to do those two things. You leave the golf courses alone. None of this making the greens insanely fast. And insane fast greens, recreational players don't really enjoy that because if their greens are super-duper fast, as they were never really were, or there was an intention for them to be, because you can't have fun on the humps and bumps when the greens are fast because you're playing so defensively. But if the greens are of a reasonable speed, where you've got to give it a little bit of a hit to get to the hole, recreational players can do that more easily because they know it'll slow down at the hole. If the green's super-duper fast, it can just take off 8, 10 feet. That's why golf is so slow at the recreational level. It's green speeds. It's not because the players are bad or they're dawdling. Everybody's three-punting all the holes. It takes up so much time. So for recreational players, you leave everything as it is right now. Let, them, let the manufacturers make the hottest ball they can under the rules. Let them make any driver headsets they want. You know why? Because Dr. Schmidlap, who shoots 92, is going to shoot 92 next year with that equipment like he did last year with other equipment. The recreational yep. players don't have the swing speed to compress the ball hard enough to be able to take advantage of the golf ball properties and drivers. Only those 200 players, you know, almost, is the only group that can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. You know, that, that, there's so much truth to to what you just said, um, you know, about the equipment. And I know Jack Nicholas has talked for many years about that. Um, about dialing, uh, you know, the equipment back just because it's gotten to the point now. And and it adds to the frustration, like you said, with recreational players. They can't um, – the greens are too fast, um, and they're just not enjoying it. And if you're not enjoying the game, then you're not playing the game. I, I want to ask – we're just about out of our time, but I think I think we can squeak this in. Uh, hopefully you can, uh, can I'll try watch to my uh, whittle this one. Yeah, watch this down. Um, I'm with you. I want to talk about television coverage and also the internet. Um, how would you change how golf is covered on television and how it's covered off the air, like through social media? What changes would you make and how would you characterize where things are right now? Well, right now you've got so many voices and so many people and, and so much clutter and the host is having to redirect traffic all over the place. And quite frankly, you know, if Jim Nance throws it to Peter Jacobson, he's watching on his TV next to the green. He's not even looking at the green. He's watching what you're watching at home. And he said, well, it's going to move a little to the left. That's the biggest problem to me is they always tell you what you just saw. What I want mm. them to say is something I don't know something I can't tell by looking, even though I'm an avid golfer with a strong golf background. And so don't tell me the obvious stuff. And unless you've got something that's so interesting to say, just shut up. Let's pick up, let the mic pick up the players talking. There's nothing you can add to the sounds of nature and the sounds of players talking on the tee, being able to hear the smash of the ball against the face of the club. And so I think the announcers generally are awful. I think all of the hosts 
are just absolutely terrible. There's so much, you know, and there's so much gratuitous, you're a great guy, you know, a lot of kissing that doesn't really need to go on. Mm -hmm. You know, nothing brings a telecast to a grinding halt like having the CEO of AT&T come on. And, you know, he looks like Larry, um, Larry David on a bad day. And so I would have one host, one analyst, nobody on the golf course, and as little chat as possible. Unless you have to say it, just keep your mouth shut. Unless there's something analyzed, don't say a word. And I, I think because of the virus, that's going to be that they're starting to actually do that a little bit. They've cut, they've moved the whole announcers off the site, but they're still they're still commentating. I would go with play-by-play guy, or brilliant host, and and somebody who's a who was a professional golfer who has a personality. So I, I would make those changes. I would I would reduce talk by ninety percent. I get rid of the blimp. It's nine. It's noisy. And never, ever have we seen a blimp shot that we had the faintest idea what was happening. The camera goes way past the end of the green, and then it comes back to where the ball is. That's not anything. And when it's in the air and the camera from the blimp is shooting it, you no longer have context because you don't see anything from that view. In terms of writing, there used to be, like Grantland Rice, great writers and right up until about 10 or 12 years ago a lot of good guys were still doing it a lot of papers have closed a lot of magazines have shut their doors kudos to you for figuring out a way to open one up for yourself and the people who work with you and so what we have now are these these fake journalists and this re, this this obsession with statistics it is maddening it, there's nothing. So there's no such thing as a top ten for a great player. It means you had a bad week. Yet everybody wants to talk about top tens. There's no such thing as strokes gained. There, <laughs> it, there is no such thing. The only thing that there is is strokes gained winning. There's no such thing as strokes gained from the left rough when you're over 150 yards away. That isn't anything. It, a statistic on its own means nothing unless it relates to a win and how many did you win by. You know, I had a fellow I got into it with today on Twitter who kept saying, you know, too bad Ernie Ellis was such a terrible putter. He could have had a great career. And I said, well, he was number one in the world, and he did win four majors, and he won 71 times, and he's a great player. And you don't win 71 times if you're not a great putter. And he said, yeah, but look, he averaged 90th in, in putting um, when he was winning. Right. And I said, that's, I said, that's because the more greens you hit, the more putts you take, the fewer greens you hit, the more you get it up and down. You're going to three-putt if you keep hitting every green. And so a statistic on its own doesn't mean anything if it's out of context. And and so if you're going to win 71 times, four majors, and be the bet number one in the world, you're by definition a great putter. And everybody on the tour is a great putter, which is the difference between the tour and, 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 and the tour underneath it, the web.com tour, or whatever we're calling it now. So that's what dis- distinguishes the players in the major leagues from the minor leagues. It's not ball hitting. It's being a great putter. So you don't win if you're not a great putter, and you're not on tour if you're not a great putter, and nor are you 71-time winner. Well said. Um, it's going to be interesting to see, Peter, what happens this season. Um, if we have a season, I know that um, – I, I spoke to earlier uh, today with um, someone at the Symmetra Tour. They're getting ready to start up in a couple of weeks uh, for their first event back 
and we'll see what happens. Um, obviously, they're going to be um, monitoring social distancing, and um, it'll be a fanless event, I'm sure, uh, as as the others are. But uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens uh, as we progress through. But I, I personally think you're not going to see a lot of change um, until 2021. I think the season is, is just going to be um, – for lack of better words, I think uh, ceremonial <laughs> at best, and uh, well, most of the tournaments have been like canceled. It's going to be a washout. Yeah, that's right. Right. It, it, it pretty much is. I mean, it, it, it's it's you know. I mean, I'm certainly interested in seeing the Masters uh, in in November, uh, but even it's going to be um, just not not the same. It'll be interesting because it's going to be played in the fall, so it'll be a little bit different than what most people are used to. But nevertheless. Um, well, Peter, I want to thank you. Uh, unfortunately, we've we've run out of time, but uh, always a pleasure having you on. And thank you for all you have done and all you're doing uh, for golf tips. Uh, I value you on as as a senior editor, and uh, you've done some great stories. I'm not going to share the one that's coming out here in a few weeks on newsstands, but if you want to get a copy of the first issue that was released under uh, iGolf Sports, um, it's now available. Has been available actually since June 16th at newsstands and uh it's uh, got a great story by my friend peter kessler uh about uh, his dear friend uh arnold palmer go get yourself a copy better yet go subscribe to golf tips mag uh magazine online at golftipsmag.com as always peter thank you very much for all that you do and i look well, forward I appreciate, to i uh, appreciate being with you tonight and i appreciate the career opportunities that you've given to me and i'm going to make you proud and i'm just super duper appreciative because it's just got my world rocking and I'm doing the things that I'm best at. And and that's because of you. And thank you very much. I appreciate it. All right. Take care. Have a good evening and happy 4th of July. And uh, I will talk to you soon. God bless my friend. God bless you and your family and have a safe and healthy, happy weekend. All right. That was my very special guest. Uh, the voice of golf himself and senior editor at Golf Tips Magazine and executive producer at iGolfSports.com, the one and only Mr. Peter Kessler. I want to thank you. We ran over a little bit longer than anticipated, but I want to thank uh, also John Decker and Bill Abrams uh, earlier on the Coach's Corner panel. Thank you guys for doing a great job. And uh, stay safe, everybody, this weekend. Uh, Enjoy uh, Independence Day. And it's a special moment in in uh, U.S. history uh, to be celebrated with with family and friends. But be safe out there uh, as we continue to navigate through uh, this pandemic, and uh, just just be responsible. Do the things that the uh, uh, those in the health profession have uh, encouraged us to do, and uh, we'll get through this on the other side. Thanks again, everybody, for joining me. I will see you uh, next week with another Coach's Corner panel and another. Great guest here on Golf Talk Live. God bless everybody and have a happy fourth. Thanks for listening to this evening's broadcast of Golf Talk Live. Remember to tune in each week at blogtalkradio.com forward slash golf talk live. If you can't join us live, check out the on demand section for previously aired broadcasts or listen on any of the following social media platforms iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, CastBox, TalkStream Live, and of course, Spotify. To get updates on future shows and upcoming guests, be sure to visit the show's Facebook page, Golf Talk Live Blog. 
can also follow me on Twitter at Ted and Buck CEO. Remember to join me live each week for another great broadcast of Golf Talk Live. See you next time. This has been a production of the iGolf Sports Network.